Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcasts. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind. Let's roll. Pastor Rob is teaching at the Council for National Policy, which is an incredible group of people that uh, um, some of the most conservative people in America, like a think tank, and they have three conferences a year, and Rob's blessed to be a part of that, and our precious friend, Bob McEwen, is the director of that, and so uh, Rob and I bounce between, I'm going to one in May, later back and forth, and so uh, we know the Lord's with him and has his hand upon him. This weekend, I thought we would do a series through rebuilding our nation because we're in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has the challenge of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which is a real picture of rebuilding the, the defenses of a nation. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, and they've already went back through with Zerubbabel, Joshua, and Ezra to rebuild the heart of the nation, and that was the temple. You have to start with a person's heart to change their life. And then once their heart is changed, then they begin to rebuild the walls of their defenses, meaning walls are meant to keep bad things out, and the gates are there to let good things in. And so it's a picture of basically self-control. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You know, the drug addict or the alcoholic that gets um, sober, but they've made a train wreck of their life for two decades, right? They've hurt every family member. They went through, they've uh, estranged their children. They've estranged, nobody wants anything to do with them. They've robbed from them. They've lied to them. They've tried to help them to no avail. And then that person comes to Christ, radically saved. And in a month, they come to me as a pastor and they say, pastor, I've been a Christian now for a month, and all of my family will not forgive me. And I'm like, bro, you trampled on their hearts for two decades, and you gave them 30 days to believe that this is the legit deal, right? You know the average of people going through rehab before they get sober? You know what the national average is? Five times. That means some of them went through 11 times. They went the first time because the judge told them to. They went the next time because their wife told them to. They went the next time because the boss told them to. They went the next time just, because, just for kicks. They went the next time because they finally woke up one day and say, hey, I'm tired of being sick and tired. And they have to rebuild their life. But you also have to rebuild a bridge to all the relationships you've hurt. And a nation goes through the same process when a nation breaks down and becomes in bondage to sin, and the enemy comes in and destroys your defenses and attacks your heart, and you no longer have a heart for God, and you now are letting bad things in that you should not, and you're keeping good things out that you should be letting in. And the story of Nehemiah is exactly that story. It's the cycle of the people of God. It's the cycle of nations. If you read through the book of Judges, the people Seek the Lord, God blesses them, prospers them, and gives them peace. They forsake the Lord, they go into bondage, they go into poverty, they go into oppression. 
They cry out to the Lord. They come into freedom. They come into prosperity and peace and victory. They forget the Lord, and you know the saga. It's like this drama, like on and on and on. You and I, for some who are older, I am the last year of what is called the baby boomers. The baby boomers go from 1946 to 1965. I was born in 65, and I have the, the privilege of seeing the gap bridged from my first memories, first memories at four years of age, as I fell in love with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, no, I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday. They're not there, so what? <laughs> Been a Dallas Cowboy fan. And watching at the, the news breaks, Vietnam in 69, what was going on. And I remember just standing there and watching it and just asking my folks, how come, you know, they're shooting these people and what's going on? Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. First, and the parents coming out and said, see the moon. You know, somebody just landed there. And coming through the upheaval of the 60s and the 70s, man, I had the coolest pair of high hip, big bell bottoms. They were checkered. Dark forest green and forest black, or and black. Forest green and black. And <laughs> this is the disco generation, right? Going to my dance in 1975. <laughs> Bridging the gap that going to our grandparents' house and my brother, the oldest, who was a teenager, he just got a watch band that had a peace sign in the leather. My grandmother being a passionate Christian, had heard that the peace sign means a broken cross. She ripped that watch off his hand when he came to visit. She took her scissors and cut it out and said, here you go. <laughs> and you bridge the gap through all of that and then coming into the 80s because you see the cultural revolution that happened in the 60s and the 70s is very much in a similar way like today. The baby boomers of that generation are now in charge in bringing our country into the bondage of socialism and communism and coming back. The seeds that were planted there have come to fruition, but when we came out of that cultural revolution, we went into the 80s. President Reagan was the first president after I graduated high school that I was able to vote for in his second term, 1984. And my dad and I, through the years, my dad was born in the uh, 30s, and he grew up in the 50s, and his son's son, Barna, in the 50s were the greatest era in American history. And I said, I agree, Dad, because I've always wanted a 57 Chevy. <laughs> <laughs> but I would honestly say only second to that would be the prosperity of the 80s, when we came through the Cultural Revolution, things stabilized, we had great leadership in the White House, and America exploded with prosperity. Now fast forward to where we're at today. Waking up in 2020 and saying, what happened to our world? I want you to know that as we look at Nehemiah's journey and Nehemiah's story, here's a guy that has to rebuild the walls of his nation. And with God's help and God's insight, and there's nothing new under the sun, he has the same struggles and the same battles that you and I do. And when you understand history and the ebb and flow, you realize that, oh, there's nothing new under the sun. God helped them then, people of God, and he'll help us today. 
So the beautiful thing is no matter what, we are able to have victory and success. As we look at this rebuilding of a nation, I've given it four words, an acronym. Last night I did the first, rebuild. Today we look at the hour, rebuild our nation now. Let's stand together and read here in Nehemiah chapter two, starting at verse nine, our passage from God's word. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent wall and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the walls. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And of the officials and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, or the others who did the work. And then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the good hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Lord, we pray that as we see a nation in distress, Lord, we see you clearly. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Lord, we look to you. Nothing's impossible for you. Your people who are called by your name, if they will look to you and turn, and turn from their sin and repent. Lord, we pray for our nation and our leadership of our nation, that you would bring the leaders of our county, of our state, of this country, to their knees in brokenness to confess that Jesus is Lord, that they might be filled with the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God to lead your people into freedom and peace and blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we work through our acronym. We want to look at opposition is inevitable. If you're going to rebuild something, you're not going to do it without a challenge. You see, the devil doesn't give up his turf easily, whether it's in your spiritual life, your personal life, your family life, or a nation. We realize that we are at battle with invisible entities. Paul the Apostle says, we don't war with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, rulers in the, this dark realm, angels and demons, God and Satan, those who want to walk with the Lord and those who do not want to walk with the Lord. Nehemiah had, in the previous chapter, heard a report. Some people had been visiting Jerusalem. They came back. Nehemiah apparently has never been there. He's the king's cupbearer, and that means that he hands the wine to the king every day. He's in the king's presence, the king of the most powerful individual uh, 
world empire at that time. And he puts the wine in his hand. As a, a cupbearer, you would drink the wine to make sure that there's no poison in it, there's no, no assassination attempts. You could have a short-lived uh, tenure, right, as a cupbearer. But he had to be a very trusted individual. On one hand, he's got a job. On the other hand, he's got a, a national identity as a Jew, as a person of faith that believed in the true and the living God. And he heard a report from some people that had been visiting from Jerusalem, and he goes, hey, what's the condition of our people there? And they gave him a bleak report. They said, oh, it's so sad. It's so dark. I mean, the walls are broken down. The people live in humiliation. They have these oppressors, these governors that are oppressing them. The people there are just, I mean, they're, they're crushed under the oppression that's there and the embarrassment of their city and its destruction. It so moved his heart. He was so moved for the Lord and from the Lord for his people that he began to weep and fast and pray for an opportunity to ask the king to go back and rebuild the walls. This is what God had put in his heart. But he was rather terrified. He prayed for a couple of months, and one day when he walked into the king's presence, the king said, hey, you're sad today. Why are you sad? And immediately it says he was filled with terror and dread. Do you know if you were sad in the presence of a king, it was grounds for you to be executed? You cannot, bring the, you cannot put a sad face on in the presence of the king. That's why they had court jesters, so everybody was happy and smiley, because the king didn't want anybody bringing his uh, happy place down. So it says immediately Nehemiah cried out to the Lord, he prayed to the Lord, and he's like, here's my opportunity. And he asked big. The king said, what's wrong with you? And he goes, well, my hometown, Jerusalem. Gates are burned with fire. Walls are broken down. It's the city of my ancestors. It's my forefathers. It's, it's my people. And I'd like to go back there and rebuild the walls. The king says, okay. How long are you going to be gone? So he gives him a period of time. He goes for broke with his big ask. He said, I not only want to go back, now that he has permission, but he says, I want a letter that says I can go through all of the, all the border crossings with a letter with your seal on it saying I can, basically the equivalent of a passport that could not be challenged. I want to get all the way there without any hassles. And he said, when I get there, I want to have a letter for the king's forest that I can get any timber that I want to rebuild the, the uh, house of the Lord, uh, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the house I'm going to live in. Basically, it was a limitless Home Depot card. I want a limitless Home Depot card to go rebuild everything, okay? So he has that. Now he's just come to town where we pick up our reading. He's just come to town and he rests for three days, it tells us, if you uh, uh, will pick that up in verse 11. But the opposition that's gonna be inevitable, inevitable is we meet the players. You know, you cannot stand up for anything good without having some opposition. In the social media realm, in the political realm, in the uh, civil uh, dynamic of your own community, city council, county supervisors, state government. It tells us once again in verse nine, then I went to the governors of the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When he came into town, he looked quite impressive with an entourage of military uh, security, if you will. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed. Notice what they're deeply disturbed about. These are the oppressors. There's three of them, Sanballat, Tobiah, and you'll learn in a little bit, another guy by the name of Geshem the Arab. These three guys 
are the county supervisors, if you will, that are oppressing and harassing the people of God. And these guys were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Isn't it strange that oppressors, when somebody comes to help the oppressed, they're disturbed? When we begin to show up in force at the school, <laughs> school board meetings, right, monthly, the school board and the progressive left was deeply disturbed that any of us would care about what we were doing to the children. They were deeply disturbed that we cared that they were indoctrinating them with transgenderism, that they are beginning to bring in critical race theory, that they are doing these things because you see, as long as good people stay away from those school board meetings, nobody's standing up for the kids, nobody's standing in the gap, and they ask people, why do you care so much? Well, I think anybody should care if children are being mutilated right, if they're being chemically castrated or they're having double mastectomies with a healthy female body at the age of 15, shouldn't that trouble anybody? Shouldn't that trouble a nation? Shouldn't there be a group of people and shouldn't there be an outcry that rises up in such a way that the oppressors finally take note that, oh, we've overstepped our boundaries. As soon as AT&T and DirecTV basically kick Newsmax off, Right? They lost 13 million viewers overnight. 13 million. Imagine the influence of a free speech platform being taken off the air. And now, according to in one week, <laughs> AT&T has lost $10 billion in their stocks because of this situation. But unless you, praise God, yeah. But when we stand up for good things, it's like people say, how dare you, why, why, why are you even in this fight? Well, I'm a citizen here and I care about our community, that's why. When Nehemiah comes to town, it really bothers Sanballat and Tobiah who have been able to oppress the people unchallenged for a very long time. And oppressors are bullies, you'll find that out. They're bullies, they're a lot of talk. And there's only one way to face bullies, right? you have to call their bluff. On the playground, you have to punch them in the nose. <laughs> and even if they're bigger than you and tougher than you, they'll never forget you bloody in their nose, and they will leave you alone and choose somebody else to punk with. Nehemiah, as he comes to town now, he now undertakes, undertake the research. If we're going to rebuild a nation, first of all, you have to understand if you step into the space of free speech and to exercise your will to help people, you are going to have enemies. I don't know what their face is. I don't know what their name is. I even went through it this last week. I had a series of leadership meetings back in Idaho this last week. I was there for five days doing leadership training, and we were going to have a meeting for an event that I was doing with Charlie Kirk in Eastern Idaho, and it all went sideways. And then an individual, it just, everything went candy wampus. That by the time I was done with the week, we're being sued. So, uh, <laughs> not with Charlie. We're, we're, Charlie and I, and Turning Point USA are great, but uh, this individual is going to uh, sue us because they don't like how things are going. And sometimes you just don't know the name or the face that's gonna come along to challenge this issue. And it blindsides you and you're just like, what? <laughs> it it kind of surprises you. 
It shouldn't, but every now and then I still get surprised. But what he does now, Nehemiah, is he hasn't told anybody. He's been there for three days. It's a long trip, four to 500 miles. He's, he got there, and then he just rested for three days. And then he gets up in the night because, you know what? He really has to see the extent of the destruction of the community if he's going to rebuild he has to do the research. He has to do the investigation. And that's what happens in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what uh, my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. He goes through this whole list of things and the rubble. He's looking at all these huge stones that are broken down from the wall. And he goes through all the gates and he's got a few people with him and they're horseback or on mules. And when he comes to this place, in verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. You see, God had put something in Nehemiah's heart. And when God puts something in your heart and gives you the faith to pursue it, you become an unstoppable individual. Because if God is for you, who could be against you? You become this, this majority in the situation. Even though the task seems overwhelming, and as we walk through this rebuilding of a nation for the children of Israel, and we learn some lessons for us as a nation, even as individuals, even in our family, maybe your life is like a dumpster fire. Right? Maybe your life, you're reeling from a broken, uh, a broken marriage or your children are sideways, whatever it might be. All of these principles work in the same way. First, you get your heart right with God. Then you begin re rebuilding the defenses of your life, the self-control in your life that starts allowing good things in and you start resisting the bad things that have been dominating your life. This principle is true for an individual, for a family, and for a nation. And so now Nehemiah secretly He's come to a community. He's come to a situation where he is going to make a stand and he's going to raise up an entire workforce that's going to accomplish what nobody could accomplish in rebuilding these walls, and he's going to pull it off in 52 days. That's what kind of leadership he has inside of him. But he does it through tremendous opposition. I wonder if you are like me, that I woke up and... In 2020, and everything that basically it ripped the mask off, the oppression and tyranny and where we were, and I just woke up one day and I said, what in the world's going on in America? You see, because I came from Idaho, a very uh, conservative area where things are uh, very different than they are here. And then waking up in that situation and pressing in to see where our country is. I want to share with you in my investigation whether it's uh, Nehemiah was looking at these big stones that were broken down and the gates that were burned with fire. But you and I have to press in. We have to use our mind so that we are intelligent. We love the Lord. We know his word. But how are we building a bridge to this cultural war that we're in? I want to give you a couple ideas. Only if you're students. Only if you want to investigate. Only if you want to research. You're a fellowship that's probably one of the most well-informed, not only because of Pastor Rob, but our guests, and where we've been in these last three years. But I want to encourage you to watch an interview by this guy, Yuri Bezmenov, if you have not. Yuri Bezmenov, in 1984, gave an interview to G. Edward Griffin, and he told us this. He was a KGB agent that had defected to America, and in 1984, he gave this uh, hour and 20-minute interview, and he 
he was so matter of fact, he said, this is what is going on in America. This is what is happening in America. He said, this is what for the last 75 years, whether it's China or it's uh, Russia, anybody that is socialist or communist, these are their four steps. You know what's happening in our nation? He says, the first stage is demoralization. And this is, these are the stages of ideological subversion or psychological warfare or operations, or we say psyops. This is how we've brought down governments as the CIA around the country. We basically infiltrate their, their country. We find out the factions that are against each other. We pit them against each other and then watch them basically destroy one another and then insert a new regime. He says these four stages, first there's demoralization. That takes for a nation, it takes about 15 to 20 years. You do it through the education system, right? So all the education, all, all of the boomers, baby boomers, that believe the, the socialism, communism type of dynamic got into power, and now at the education level, in all the, the schools and the universities, now in all the media and Hollywood, all believe this attempt at utopia socialism, basically a redistribution of wealth. And Margaret Thatcher said that re, uh, socialism only works as long as you have other people's money, <laughs> right? As soon as you spend everybody else's money, it doesn't work. But the demoralization has fully taken place. We now see an entire young generation, 15 to 20 years, so indoctrinated, the young generation hates America. They hate America. Have you noticed that at Thanksgiving with your grandkids? America's a joke. There is no American dream. Nobody can basically, through their own merit and effort, rise in America. That's a lie. It's not true. So the demoralization is complete. Now this, this is the sad thing that Yuri Bezanov says. When a, a generation of people, 15 to 20 years, the younger generation, once they've completed this brainwashing, when you bring to them facts and evidence and rational thought about things, like, hey, the vaccine is hurting people, and there's scientific evidence, all of these things. When you bring it to them, people that have went, th went through the process, even if you put the bare reality and facts in front of their face, they will not believe you. They will not believe you. Some of us have had those conversations, right? Like, here's the facts. You talk so have you noticed that when you just talk slower and louder when you think people are idiots? <laughs> Here are the facts. But it doesn't matter at that point. Once that's complete, Yuri Bezmenov says, then there's destabilization. Destabilization comes with hurting the economy. Lenin said it this way. He said, you, you, uh, you grind the middle class through inflation. Are we having inflation? And high taxes. That's how you grind them into submission because you have to crush that. You also then disrupt law and order. Right, you have to set the criminals free, stop, you know, stop prosecuting, let people out of prison, let the prisoners begin to run amok as a mob in the streets. Is that happening? That's happening, right, destabilization. Then you also, through the destabilization, you, on the, the national, the uh, international stage, you uh, become weak, and then your detractors or enemies become strong. You see our... Uh, the exit from Afghanistan in its haphazard way. You see all of this stuff. The first Chinese air balloon. Now they've shot down three objects in the sky, right? Right one Friday, Saturday, and uh, the one last week down in South Carolina. This is all destabilizing 
the, the sovereignty of a nation. You open the border so you destabilize immigration so that there's a flood. Yuri Bezmenov says this is the playbook that is as old as Russia itself. And if you don't, this is like Nehemiah in his day, seeing the rubble and seeing what he's facing. You and I have to see that and understand that. Then there's the crisis. This period of time can take up to six weeks. You shut down a nation. You redistribute power so that now there is emergency powers in per, uh, perpetuity for Governor Gavin Newsom, right? Once they get a power like that, they do not want to give it up. And lastly, there's normalization. What's normalization? That you let the, you let the nation get so chaotic that now the government comes in with such force and crushes all the, di uh, the dissidents so that you're finally relieved of peace, but then you realize, oh, we're now slaves of the government because you gave up all your liberty. These are the steps and the normalization. People have asked me over and over and over, when will people wake up? They only wake up when the person has their boot on your throat, and then they finally wake up. When will this young generation, Yuri Bezanov says something fascinating. You know all the, the individuals that are the talking heads for this, the AOCs and the Nancy Pelosi's and all these people that Gavin Newsom's these progressive, socialist, communist left, they are the talking heads, but he said as soon as the normalization happens in every regime in history that Russia's been a part of, their talking heads get executed. Why? Because they actually believe the lie, spread the lie, and then when they wake up with the boot on their throat, they become the most vehement, angry detractors of the regime, and they can't tolerate that. So they use them as useful idiots, and then they execute them because they are the worst when it comes to when they wake up, they are passionate about fighting the regime. Yuri says this in this next slide, ideological subversion or psychological warfare changes the perception of reality to such an extent that despite the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. I read this book, which helped me a lot, in the middle of 2020. It's called Cynical Theories by James Lindsay, and it talks about postmodernism. Postmodernism attacks every stable category, male, female, <laughs> husband, wife, heterosexual uh, expression of sexuality, and it disrupts the message, it destabilizes, it dismantles, it destroys. Postmodernism only knows how to destroy and then it rules over the ashes. It's a heavy read, and then he followed that up by race Marxism, which if you understand the whole race thing right now, it's so huge that every situation they will teach you is there is an oppressor and an oppressed person in every single conversation you ever have with a person of color. And this is the illustration that gets you every time because they know how to work or navigate it. You're a white individual that's a store clerk. A white person comes in and a black person comes in. They bait you and say, which one will you help first? And if you say, uh, I would say as a store clerk, uh, anybody ready for help? <laughs> so it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care who I'm going to help first. They will say, if you choose the black person, you chose them because you were afraid. You had to help them because you were afraid they were going to steal something for the store. Are you nuts? If you chose the white person, it's because you hate the black person. No matter how, who you choose, they make you look like an oppressor. They humiliate you. Race Marxism teaches that basically this is the new frontier 
of socialism, the color of your skin. Rather than competence for a job, it's the color of your skin. I don't care what, how, how, how much melanin you have, if you're light, if you're dark, whoever's flying my airplane to New York, I want to be good at it. Whoever's operating on my body, I want to be good at it. But you have to lower scores and merit-based because it's this whole socialism at the little league level is everybody gets a participation trophy. It's equity for all. When I grew up, if you were the best team, you won. Doesn't matter what the color of the skin is, right? Whoever scores more, most. And it's this meritocracy that is built into a society. The next is, I don't know if you've been startled by the climate hysteria. Climate change, did you see the article last week? A major climate change scientist has declared that Miami will be underwater. Really? They said that about New York, they said about Miami. It's just this area. And then it's interesting to me, all these people that are for climate change, they're buying beachfront properties, right? This book called Unsettled, I want you to check it out. This is by a scientist who is a provost, provost professor of science at Caltech, one of the most um, prestigious technical colleges in America. And he was in the Obama administration. He writes this book and he titles it Unsettled because when you talk to people about climate change, everybody says what? It's a fact. Now this is the fact. In 170 years of recorded temperature history, it has risen so, uh, Fahrenheit 1.5 degrees. That's a fact. We're not climate change deniers. It, in 170 years, it has increased by 1.5, or one Celsius. In the next five to 10 years, it may go up to two. Having said that, so what? So what? That's what this scientist says over and over. He says all of the hysteria, and he, he, take, he looks at the annual climate change reports that are given to the White House and to Congress and tears them apart scientifically and says what they're saying, their, their, their lead headline are lies and propaganda because it's not true. It's not true. And yet we have, now you may, you're gonna, we're gonna outlaw your, your, your uh, gas stoves, right? We're gonna outlaw those. We, we've gotta get rid of your, <laughs> your combustion engine vehicles, though there's already not enough power to run your air conditioning. How are you gonna run your car if it's electric? And Bill Gates is looking for a face diaper invention to put on to muzzle cows because when they chew the cud, it's, uh, they're burping up the stuff. And you're like, what kind of insanity but can I just break it down even to a little, another thing, another level, spiritually speaking? Those who watched the State of the Union address, there were Democrats that wore abortion pen, pendants and with a heart on it that means I love abortion. In what, in what generation do people in, at the State of the Union, they took off their American flags and put I love abortion. So you have an entire generation that is for human sacrifice and they worship creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. We go right back to paganism in Romans chapter one. When you strip off the face of this progressivism, it's regressivism that takes us to paganism. And so unless you wake up 
Now, the last book is Fossil Future by Alex Epstein, who is a, a great uh, philosophy major from Duke who has unpacked all of this stuff, and not to give it any more time, but we live in a generation where the rubble that I have to check out while our nation is crumbling is in a different dynamic, right? And it's this ideology that's going on. So where do we go from here? Where'd Nehemiah go? We gotta learn the lesson and keep moving forward. He rallies the troops. God's put it in his heart to bring change and rebuild the walls. He's went and investigated. Yep, it is as bad as he thought. <laughs> you guys, in America, it is as bad as we thought it was <laughs> at every level. But the beautiful thing is, is that God can help us to speak up. And the people that are exploding onto the scene right now with voices across America are Nehemiahs across the nation to rebuild the walls of this incredible dynamic that we have. Starting with spiritually, the churches have to be mean, lean, preaching machines about the love of Jesus Christ. See, people get saved. Hey, amen. See people get saved and begin their walk with the Lord, see them rebuild their lives and wake up and say, oh, I also want to rebuild my community. So he rallies the troops in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the good or excuse me, of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. He calls the leadership together of Jerusalem. And he says, I wanna tell you what God's put in my heart. I wanna tell you when I prayed and I presented it to the king, what the king told me. Look, at I got this letter to Home Depot, we can rebuild, right? And He's got the authority to give to the governors. And when you see one person, and that's what people are looking for, you guys, is just one person to stand up and say, you know what, God's put it in my heart to make a difference. God's put it in my heart to speak up. God's put it in my heart. And what you'll see is people will gather around you because a lot of people, they, they may not be the leader, but they wanna help the leader. They may not be the tip of the spear, but they'll give finances, or they'll pray, or they'll come alongside, or they'll help in some way, shape, or form, so that you can say, let us rise up and build. And that's what we've been doing in this season of life, rising up and building, building in our community, getting involved with this constitutional republic through the elections, and seeing for the first time, you guys, first time in four decades, a conservative majority on the county supervisory committee or I mean on the board. <laughs> and I know that you guys have heard these things, I know that, but for me, it's always, I'm always the most motivated when I see it wrapped in the package of God's people doing it in the past. It fills me with courage for the future. And that's why we're going through this as we look at this. Let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to do this incredible work Man, what a heavy lift it was. But those who are in opposition step up. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you, will you rebel against the king? So when we step up, people are laughing at us. They're mocking us. When I talk about these 
this book scientifically about climate change, people get this big grin on their, have you noticed this grin for the last three years? When you tell somebody the truth and facts and rational thought, they smile at you like you're a delusional conspiracy theory person. And the only difference between the truth and a conspiracy is about nine months, right? We talk about it, nine months later, it's proven. I, I don't know, have you guys heard about this conspiracy theory of Hunter Biden's laptop? <laughs> Did you know that that was Russia disinformation? That was from a, a Russian dynamic, and now all of these people that are testifying before Congress this last week from Twitter, that they're saying, oh wait, well, you know, the FBI is asking us to do this. We live in this almost dystopian, weird time basically like the book, George Orwell's uh, 1984 book. But be prepared to be laughed at, to be mocked, to be called deplorables, to be called, you know, like these knuckle draggers. I'll never forget Katie Couric when she came out some years ago uh, during the Trump administration, and she's like, I wonder what kind of counseling it would take to change the minds of these people, basically described us as these cavemen knuckle draggers, because we actually wanted energy independence and low gas prices and low inflation, right? We want to know inflation. Because we want common sense things, we're, <laughs> we're weirdos. Because we believe in a man and a woman that that's a real deal, right? We're weirdos. Because, because we don't want you chopping off our precious little girls' bodies, parts, we're weirdos. Who's the weirdo? Because we want to stand up for the life of a child, Shouldn't the strong always stand up for the weak? Those who cannot defend themselves? What's wrong with a twisted, upside-down world? Exactly what the Lord said through Isaiah. Woe to a people when they call good evil and evil good. And that's where we live today. And we are looked at these strange people. You know, this article that came out this last week that the FBI has figured out a way to criminalize believers by calling, they're doing investigations into extremist Catholics, and then they'll do extremist Baptists, and then extremist evangelicals, but they found the, the framework of the wording so that they can begin to come after us. If we believe in Jesus and believe the Bible, we are extremists. Because somehow you have to weaponize and shut up the mouth of God's people because you guys are the only people in a community across the nation that has the guts to stand up and speak the truth. So that's... <laughs> but I love this response. They're laughing at Nehemiah and all these people. They despise them for what they wanted to do to help God's people. And they began to lie about them by saying, will you rebel against the king? You see, he had permission from the king, but basically they're gonna lie about Nehemiah saying, you wanna be made king. You wanna rebuild these walls so that you can be the king and rebel against the king. It's not true, but they have to wrap everything in a lie. I love Nehemiah's response here. So I answered them <laughs> and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will rise and build but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Laugh at us, despise us, mock us. 
lie about our motivation, which is simply to be a people that have prosperity and peace. Lie that we're going to rebel against the king. We're not. We're not rebelling. We're not taking up arms. We're not doing any of those things. He says, but God is with us. And we, his servants, we're going to rise and build. But you guys, you have no heritage. You have no memorial. Nobody's going to remember you. You have no right here. The right that you are standing on is, is a foundation that is built on sand. Because your philosophy of life, the things that you believe, bring people into bondage and oppression and slavery. So we're going to do our thing. And obviously you're going to keep laughing at us, despising us, lying about us. But we're going to continue to rise and build. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Nehemiah has to interact with these enemies all the time. And Nehemiah does it with such, such grace. And he does, as we look at in the next couple of messages throughout this weekend, uh, pray the imprecatory prayer, which is basically, God, you judge them. God, you deal with them. God, you bring the hammer down on them. It's, it's a great, <laughs> it's a, definitely an Old Testament way to pray for your enemies. So I pray that God's will would be done in their life, and I pray that they would get radically saved. I pray for our president, vice president, congressman, that the Lord would bring them to their knees in radical repentance, get saved, because he's done it in the past. He spoke in dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. He spoke in dreams to Pharaoh, to Abimelech. Throughout history, God has intervene when a human voice cannot reach the throne of a kingdom or a white house or the, the halls of Congress, the Spirit of God can. So as we pray, we are going to rise and build. Let them laugh. Let them mock. Let them lie about us because it's not true. And as long as we have the smile of God, I don't mind the frown of the world. But we live in a generation where pastors and churches want the smile of the world and they're compromising the truth of the word of God, so that they can have the, the smile of the world, but you can't have that without the frown of God. So you really have to decide as we move through this season of life, you guys, for the next decade, because what has to happen is now a cultural revolution for the next 15 to 20 years. Take our children out of the public realm, bring them into Christian schools to treat, teach them in the word of God and our founding fathers and the true history of our nation and its greatness and raise up an entire generation. But that's a long game, right? 15 to 20 years? So batten down the hatches. Open up your Bible. Get on your knees and let's rise and build and see what God does. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, we are weak and helpless apart from you. Truly, Lord, we, we can do nothing without you. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Lord, I pray that here by your spirit, you would put into our hearts what you want to do. I pray that you would move us in a powerful, unified way to rebuild our lives personally. Lord, I pray for those personal lives and those families that are broken down right now. Lord, I pray that you would bring the healing, Lord Jesus, of your redemption and your grace and your forgiveness to men and women, to bring healing to their homes and their families, that you would turn the hearts of fathers back to their children to care about this next generation. Lord, I pray for our nation. I pray that we could make a difference, that we could rebuild our community, Lord, we may not reach the 
other 57 counties of California, but Lord, give us the grace to impact Ventura County. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our county supervisory board with your grace and your wisdom. We pray that you would uh, minister to our sheriff, Lord, that you would be with those who are in the city councils across this community, this county. Lord, that your grace, your wisdom, your spirit, and Lord, I pray that you would pull the mask off the darkness and that you would turn on your light and that you would reveal things to these people that they would see where this is going. Lord, truly, it's not just a, a phrase or a verse for our refrigerator at home. Lord, we pray it sincerely. Let us rise and build. Lord, you and your kingdom to bring faith to people's hearts and freedom to our nation and community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time's trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 whoa. I will keep my heart seeking